You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a look at mouthwash and STIs. Could Listerine help curb the spread of gonorrhea? Our main topic is on sex and romance after assault. We talk about different methods and techniques you can employ to help move beyond. We close with a question on helping to support a suicidal mate. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. So, before we even get started with this episode with the introduction, I'm just going to kind of lay it out here. This is going to be a heavy episode, everybody. We're going to talk about topics that some people might find to be distressing or in some ways emotionally triggering. So, in terms of the content, if even reading the title of this episode causes you a little bit of distress, I would urge you to maybe listen to another one of our shows or to find somebody to talk to about why this is distressing in order to work past whatever pain that it is that you're feeling. This this is going to be a very rough and raw episode, so just bear that in mind as we move into it. Um, we're going to kind of kick off the show, though, with a little, you know, something a little bit lighter. It all can't be heavy. And we're going to talk about, uh, there was a paper that you found, Vero, that talked about Listerine helping kill off gonorrhea in the mouth. Yeah, so basically, this is an interesting uh, article that came out in the journal, uh, I think, Sexual Sexually Transmitted Infections, which is a British journal. It's actually, I think, under the British uh, medical journal uh, imprint. And they published a study that actually shows that uh, gay and uh, bisexual men who used Listerine essentially might be less likely to... uh, transmit gonorrhea, uh, in this case, uh, gonorrhea to uh, a partner. So basically, uh, gonorrhea, as we talk about, is oftentimes people don't realize you can actually transmit through oral sex in addition to vaginal sex and anal sex. You can actually get uh, gonorrhea in the throat by giving oral sex, and uh, that can be transmitted to a penis by uh, through fellatio or to a uh, vagina through cunnilingus, right? So anytime where you're getting contact like of that sort, you can get uh, gonorrhea transmission. It turns out that gonorrhea in the throat are susceptible, though, uh, to being killed off by uh, some of the active ingredients of Listerine. So uh, this study found that men who were using Listerine were 80% less likely to test positive for gonorrhea in their throat five minutes after gargling than were men who instead gargled with a saline solution. Uh, so after rinsing and gargling for one minute, the proportion of viable gonorrhea in the throat was 52% among men using Listerine, compared with 84% among those using saline. You might not think that 82% versus 84% is that big of a difference, but when you're talking about things like uh, disease transmission, it really does come down to the raw number of uh, bacterial particles that are present uh, that are unviable as to whether or not you're actually going to establish an infection. It's kind of like, you know, how big is your army? If your army is smaller, you're less likely to establish a beachhead, right? It's kind of a similar concept, pretty easy to understand. Speaking as a microbiologist, that's essentially what we're talking about, is these bacteria trying to establish a beachhead. And if they have a smaller army, they're less likely to succeed. So this is basically making the army a lot smaller. It's making the, the odds of transmission of gonorrhea a lot lower. 
So it turns out that if you're about to be giving head, the conscientious thing to do is to gargle with Listerine for a minute beforehand. You're actually less likely to infect your partner, even if you do happen to have an active uh, infection with gonorrhea. I think that's a kind of cool study. Good to get that out there because it's a pretty harmless thing to do. It'll make your breath better. You'll enjoy making out sessions more. I actually do this as part of my normal sex routine because I have bad dog breath. But like Listerine is great. It's wonderful. It's a good pre-sex routine thing to add. So I say, you know, there's really no harm in following the study. It, it might be a bit of a puff piece for Listerine, but I'm all for that. And this, you know, if it's really benefiting public health, in this case, I think it is. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, we talk about cleaning out the other end when it comes to sex. And this is, you know, if we're going to clean out the butt, maybe we should clean out the mouth a little bit too. Um, it's, I tend to, because whenever I'm sexually active, it tends to be in the morning. So like, it can be a little bit, perhaps a little bit awkward for people that enjoy like, Hey, I just woke up and this is crazy. My dick is hard. So fuck me. Maybe like, it might be a little bit weird to kind of be like, okay, well first I'm going to go and like brush my teeth and use some mouthwash and all of that. But you know, if you were concerned about the transmission of gonorrhea, um, if you happen to carry it or have carried it in the past, or if you're just a health conscientious freak like I am, then this is a good step to kind of mitigate the spread of sexually transmitted infections. So I mean, it's, it's Listerine is a great brand. Please sponsor us. Um, <laughs> totally. You know, can we get our money now? Um, but really it's, it's, it's interesting to see the off label uses of certain, you know, commonly, you know, used things within the house and Listerine is you know, mouthwash is something that everybody tends to have. Uh, so you know, just keep that in mind if this is something that, you know, you're concerned about and, you know, it's going to be a good time. It's, it's, you know, thinking like, you know, the idea of like, what if we're in terms of like climate change, you know, what if we're just making the world a better place for nothing? I mean, at yeah, worst, exactly. at worst, yeah. you're going to have minty fresh breath and that's going to be yeah. really great. And I, <laughs> so, I feel good when you're going down on somebody, you know, Rinse out with Listerine and go down on somebody and give give them the minty fresh blowjob. That's actually a fun experience to give your partner, depending on if they like sensation play, you know? And it's, I find Listerine, <laughs> if I have any cuts in my mouth, it does kind of tingle a little bit over the cuts. So if you're worried about, you know, getting something into your bloodstream, that's also a good way for you to tell and be like, maybe I don't do oral today because there's a cut in my mouth. If you're worried about that sort of thing as well. Most Listerine now doesn't really burn or tingle that much, but... I find it still does a little bit. So there's another use straight to you from me. So we're going to get into our main topic and I'm going to preface it a little bit before we hit there, just to kind of, again, give any individuals their last chance to opt out. Um, this is something that we get asked every now and then. Individuals that have suffered from emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, often have difficulties in sustaining relationships after the abuse occurs. And this happens with or without therapy, with and without support networks. It's something that is just difficult. And, you know, speaking as somebody that I, you know, I personally have spoken about and been through an, an abusive relationship it's important that 
people understand different ways to not cope with the abuse, but to learn to move past the abuse. It's not coping is great. It's like an emergency blanket, but we want to talk about different methods that, you know, um, that psychologists and therapists will often employ or advise in order to help people kind of begin to heal. Yeah. And I think we're definitely going to take a bit of an academic approach to things, but again, just as Magico said, there's also going to be a lot of personal uh, stuff mixed in with it because I'm also someone who's been through being sexually assaulted, which is not something I talk about a lot, but it means something that happened to me when I was in college and, um, it wasn't anything, I mean, I, I just, from my own perspective, it wasn't anything horrible, but it did have a really profound effect on my sex drive and the way I felt about myself for a while after it happened. And it was something psychologically that I had to work through and dealt with a lot of feelings about. So that does, I think, enable me to empathize a bit better with people who've been the victims of, in my opinion, more serious uh, types of sexual assault. So hopefully we'll try to take a bit of an empathetic approach to things as well. And this is just one thing that I do want to point out, and we will kind of repeat this throughout the course of this episode. This is discussing assault that didn't occur or was not caused by your mate or somebody that's in your life. Uh, For example, if your partner is abusing you, this isn't about how to love them after the abuse happens. Um, If you are with somebody who is abusive, whether that's emotionally, physically, sexually, however that abuse occurs, get help immediately. As soon as it's safe, as soon as it is feasible for you to do it without, you know, inviting further harm from this individual, seek help immediately. We're going to kind of jump into this now. So... What you need to do first, whenever you've had such an experience and the experience is no longer happening, your abuser is no longer part of your life, whether you've moved away from them, they've left you, they've been, you know, imprisoned. However, the separation has occurred. There, there are going to be a lot of emotions that are going to run through you. You're it's, it's going to be just a tumultuous experience. And you need to learn to trust yourself. And that's really the first thing, because I remember immediately after I got out of my situation, we'll call it, there was, I I blamed myself a lot for it. I blamed myself for allowing myself to get into the situation, for allowing my partner to be as abusive as long as it happened, for not seeing the warning signs earlier. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I like to feel in control. And when you have experiences with other people, you do lose a sense of control. That's part of the vulnerability that we talk about. And so after a horribly negative experience, you want to feel some sense of control. And so there is a tendency to blame yourself for what happened. That's, that's all too often common. What I want to say is that reactions that you experience after assault, they're, they're valid, they're natural. These are real feelings. They may not necessarily be the most rational, but these are real feelings and they are natural. And if you didn't feel guilt or blame or self-blame or 
anything like that, then that's okay too. The fact is, is that no two people will experience the same reactions, even on the on, on, on the same time frame. There's there's no kind of roadmap to healing after abuse. There's no okay on day five you're going to feel really guilty, but then on day six you're going to feel really great. There is no established time frame because. Obviously, everybody is different. Your reactions, the time frame that you need to heal, they're going to be different. So while it's okay to listen and seek advice from people that have gone through the same experiences, it's important that you trust yourself and that what you're experiencing is completely valid. The feelings, the emotions, all of it. And just because you aren't going through it the same way that anybody else did... It doesn't make the abuse that you experienced any worse, any better, or any different. At the end of the day, abuse is abuse, and it can be colored in shades of severity, perhaps. But abuse is abuse at the end of the day. So don't... I mean, while it can be helpful for some people to kind of look at it in a, well, this happened to me, but it could have been worse. And that can be helpful for people to heal and to kind of recover and think, wow, I didn't necessarily have it as bad. The fact of the matter is, is that abuse, it's a horrible experience, regardless of the severity. So you can color it however you want, but you can't bury it. You can't conceal it. You have to kind of go through it when it comes to the healing process. What took a while for me was I had to kind of learn to trust myself in the fact that what happened was something basically outside of my control and that I will get better. I, I spent a long time kind of blaming myself as the victim. And it's kind of a weird experience because after you've been victimized for such a long period of time by somebody else, you start to victimize yourself. And this, it took me a long time to move past this because for me, it was again, a control thing for me. It was something where this was something that was out of my control. And the only way that I can make logic of this for me to make any kind of, of reason to what happened was I allowed this to happen. Some people like to talk about, well, this is karmic retribution this is what you get. You, you know, you dove in, you didn't analyze it. These are things that, you know, some of them I, ne I didn't necessarily subscribe to the whole, like, this is karmic retribution for shit that you did earlier. No, thank you. That's, that's, that's bullshit. But part of me did subscribe to the, if I had analyzed this, if I hadn't been so fast to move, if I hadn't been so rash in my decisions to get into this relationship, I might have recognized the the red flags. Um, again, you know, we're, we're going to kind of quote from the Bojack, you know, Bojack the Horseman show and talk about when you are going through feelings of you know, limerence, of new relationship energy, all of the red flags, they just look like flags because you're wearing those rose-colored glasses. And a relationship is something that you're excited for and you're feeling nervous about yourself. So 
it's all too common for people to discount things that might be considered as warning flags, just as the butterflies that you experience when a relationship starts, the nervous relationship energy, if you will. And it happens for every relationship. As two people learn, or more people in terms of polyamorous relationships, as people learn to integrate their lives with each other and to seek ways that the puzzle pieces that are their existence can fit together, hiccups happen. And for me, when I was entering into this relationship, there were bumps and there were hiccups, but I just discounted them as this is, you know, just a little bit of a roller coaster, right? As we establish the life that we want to have together. It's out of your control what somebody else does. If somebody, if an abusive partner blames you for their behavior, if you were better at sex, if you had more sex with me, if you didn't burn dinner, if you were more communicative, then I wouldn't have to do this. These kinds of victim blamings are out of your control. They are a means by which your abuser tries to control your life. By pointing out areas that they find you deficient in, or areas that they want more in, it puts you in the position of being the one that's wrong. It puts you in the analytic position of, well, if I had maybe initiated sex more often, then maybe he wouldn't have raped me. If maybe I cleaned the house more, he wouldn't be yelling at me all the time. Maybe if I had a better job. He wouldn't be so stressed out all the time and feel the need to just make fun of me. All of these are ways that abusers seek to control your life. Abuse at the end of the day is a means by which an individual seeks to take control away from you. You have to understand it at that core level. It is not your fault what happened. It was something that was out of your control. The fact that you removed yourself from this situation is proof that you had no control, and the only way that you could gain control was to separate yourself from the situation. The moment that you are able to get out is the second that you regain control. And it is important to remember that. And it is something that I had to remind myself on a daily basis. Because for me, it was all too easy to blame myself. Replaying the actions, the interactions, the entire relationship, role-playing it in my mind. Finding ways to make it better, finding ways to make it a happier, more sustainable relationship. None of those are healthy mental exercises. You can find some solace in the fact that by going through the relationship in a post-mortem sense, you can learn to identify red flags as red flags and not just hiccups. But once you are immediately out of a relationship that is abusive, that is not the time to do critical analysis. The time for healing is that's when it is. You need to heal. There's a lot of emotional and potentially physical triage that you have to go through in order to better yourself. And what analysis really is at the end of the day is open heart surgery. So don't rush that. Allow yourself to heal 
as you regain control. Yeah, and I think a huge part of this, and I think it's something that a lot of people either don't know or, or don't really intuitively kind of grok, but in order to really heal from something and even to, to grasp it and to, to deal with it analytically and critically like you were talking about, you really need to kind of feel the shit out of your feelings and really experience them and let yourself experience them and allow yourself to name them and allow yourself to really admit to yourself what it is you're feeling. And a lot of times people have a lot of trouble doing that and really admitting their true full strength of their feelings because a lot of the times their feelings are wrapped up in something like guilt or shame. And when you feel guilty or shameful about something that you've done that's wrapped up with your feelings, uh, you often don't let yourself experience those feelings fully because you're worried about feeling that shame and feeling that, uh, that guilt. So you really have to work on first before you can even address the feelings you have about the event. You have to focus on addressing whatever guilt or shame you might be feeling about whatever happened. And it's important to just remind yourself that whatever you are feeling is okay. And there's really no need to experience guilt or shame because as Metrico was saying, you didn't choose for this to happen to you and it wasn't your fault. You don't have to take any responsibility for anything that happened because you didn't choose for any of it to happen. Once your consent was violated, the rest of it is a moot point. You do not have to worry about anything that happened afterwards. You are being you know, assaulted, right? So in, the, in that situation, you have to realize that you don't need to feel guilty or shameful about whatever happened. That's up to your perception of the event. And I really encourage you to try to look at it in a way that doesn't make you feel guilt or shame. Uh, it's also, and this is something I think a lot of people are afraid to talk about because it's kind of taboo, but because a lot of times people who um, get into situations where they might be assaulted are people who might have been considering having sex, or maybe they were, they were, there was an attra initial attraction, and then they changed their mind or got cold feet, and someone forces themselves on the person. And so there might be, if there was that initial attraction that led to a, an assault or a rape situation, the person might feel a lot of guilt or shame about the fact they might actually have enjoyed part of the experience, have been aroused by part of the experience, because maybe they were initially attracted to this person who chose to violate their boundaries and assault them in this non-consensual way. And so they feel a lot of guilt and shame about having enjoyed part of the experience. That's also incredibly common. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that, but it's important that you just let yourself experience that feeling. It's not bad. You're not wrong. You don't have to judge yourself. You can be very non-judgmental with yourself in the situation. You don't have to judge yourself for feeling anything like pleasure or uh, any kind or arousal or anything that you might have experienced while also experiencing a really traumatic assault. Um, mixed emotions are okay to feel. It's okay to have liked certain parts of what happened and still experience the entire event as an assault. And you don't need to feel bad that your body responded in a natural and self-defensive way to an assault either. For example, if you became erect or something while being assaulted, that is, again, something you don't have to hold against yourself or feel guilty about. And it's important to keep that in mind. Now, I will say, um, if you are feeling guilt or shame, that's, that's fine. What's important is that you identify it and you work on moving past it. You don't have to feel that way, even if you currently do. And that's an important distinction to make because you as a fully realized, fully in control individual, you are able to determine what it is you should and should not feel. Once you've identified, okay, well, I'm feeling guilty over what happened. I'm feeling ashamed over what happened. I feel like I'm unclean or in any sort of thing like that. You can then begin to make moves to kind of get past that. 
there is a school of thought, and this is kind of unhealthy, and especially within the fandom, which is predominantly male, is that if you had an erection, if you experienced orgasm, if there were feelings of pleasure, especially in men, because with men it is easier to kind of determine the full flow of, of sexual activity, if you will. There's an erection, there's come. And once you come, you've reached the fruition of sex and you're good to go. The thing is, is that even if you do come, even if you experience an erection, even if all of these things happen, if your mind is experience, if your body is experiencing pleasure while your mind is experiencing some kind of, you know, torment or some kind of, you know, agony or terror, it's fine. It's 100% okay. There are certain kind of bodily actions and behaviors that are outside of your control. For some guys, it's just thinking about sex that gets them rock hard. For some people, it's there's a gust of wind that is happening halfway across the world, and that's all it takes for them to get an erection. Well, some people do have rape fantasies, and if someone happens to be raped and they have a rape fantasy, that might end up turning them on, but it might they might still be horrified and revolted yeah. by what they're experiencing because they still don't actually want it in that moment, even though they're being aroused by it. They can be self-revolted, and that's actually a really horrible thing to experience. Absolutely. So it's it's good to kind of understand that your body reacted the way that it reacted, but that doesn't represent your mental state. You have to separate your body's reactions from your mental reactions. And that can, again, be a very difficult thing to do. Because you want to view everything as a 100% wholly contained experience. But by taking your bodily reactions out of it and just focusing on your mental state before, during, and after you're going to find that it is a little bit easier to move past these things and to heal once you compartmentalize everything in that fashion. There's there's another thing that um, I actually didn't put in the notes, and I apologize, Vero, but I'm going to kind of touch on. This is something that in the 60s, um, when like 60s, 70s, when girls would go to like sexual purity abstinence rallies there is this idea that was tossed around of your body is a lollipop and your virginity is the wrapper on the lollipop and once you give away your virginity the lollipop becomes dirty that's not really the case regardless of if we want to keep going with the metaphor your lollipop is still a lollipop and lollipops are good Wrapped or not wrapped. Just because, let's say, you're a virgin and you lost your virginity to assault. That doesn't make you dirty or unclean or mean that nobody will want to have sex with you. What that means is that you had a really terrible first experience and you need to take time to heal emotionally and physically and to kind of become a more fully complete individual. Because when somebody assaults you, it does take a piece of you away. And you have to kind of heal that portion, that loss of control, to regain it. 
once you're able to do that, then you know, you'll find that it's easier to trust yourself. It's easier to trust that you are a good person, that you are an intelligent person, that you are a person who can make good decisions, and that you are a person that people will find attractive, that people will find to be somebody that they want to spend their life with. You're not dirtied or unclean or untouchable. You might feel that in the moment in the time leading after it. However long it takes for you to heal, you might feel that. But just understand and know that there will eventually be a day where you will move past all of this. There's always a good day after a bad day. It doesn't always come immediately. But as long as you make steps and take steps to heal, whether that's alone, which I do not recommend, whether that's with the help of friends, family, a support structure that you have in place, or whether that's if you seek professional help, going to a therapist, a psychologist, a sex therapist, as long as you make those steps and as long as you're able to look at things, I want to say critically, then you will find that the healing will come at a natural pace. One of the things, though, is that while you're learning to trust yourself, you also have to balance kind of precariously this idea of trusting other people. Now, there are studies that show that um, between 60 to 80% of sexual assault happens from people that you know, people that are family friends, close friends, things of that nature. Most rape is not from a complete stranger, only about 20%. It can be difficult to trust even the closest of friends, the longest of friends that you've had in your life once a situation like this happens, once you are abused or assaulted. It's important that you kind of understand that your close friends do have your best interests in mind. And that, that seems kind of contradictory because, well, if 80% of assault happens from somebody that's close to me, how can I be sure? These are the things that can hurt you. When I went through my abuse immediately afterward, I walled off. I shelled everybody out. And I kind of refused to interact with people. And while that was good for me in the short run to kind of come to terms with myself... It hurt me a little bit in the long run because I didn't have anybody to really talk to, and it was just a tempest in a tea car, uh, a teacup rather. There was no way for me to vent or get any of these emotions out of me, and it was really kind of not a good thing. Right, I think just you know, speaking from a scientific or you know statistical perspective here, what's important to remember is that you know even if yes, it's true that your person who might rape you is more likely to be a friend than a stranger it's still overall an extremely unlikely event. The majority of your friends are going to have your best interests at heart, are going to be caring and empathetic and are going to you know, care about your well-being and your happiness and are not going to cruelly take advantage of you in that way. So you have to keep that in mind that even though it happened to you once, that doesn't actually increase your likelihood of it happening to you again. It doesn't make any of your other friends any less trustworthy. You have to just try to keep that in mind and, and try to be a little bit more rational about it, right? Right. And... 
you know, if you're interested in the statistics behind this, I would um, I would urge you to visit um, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, R-A-I-N-N. Uh, they do a lot of research on this topic in terms of how much, what, what, what the rate of abuse is and where the abusers tend to come from in your life. So that's where I'm sourcing the 60 to 80%. They cite that it is actually 80%. But you need to have somebody or some people in your life, whether it's family members, friends, somebody that you can trust because healing is a long road and you can't do it alone. I mean, it's possible that you can, but it is very difficult and the road is much longer if you go it alone. Think about Lord of the Rings. I mean, Frodo had a massive fucking burden in the one ring of power, but he had somebody that was there to help him carry the burden. When you are carrying the burden of self-loathing, of guilt, of shame, of anger, all of these emotions that people feel after abuse. Having somebody close to you to help pick you up when you feel at your lowest is infinite. It is so important. I can't begin to express that. I was very fortunate several months after I went through that experience to really force myself to open up and I met a lot of my very good friends. And while I didn't necessarily open up, you know, to them immediately, it wasn't like, hi, my name is Metrico and I just went through an emotionally abusive relationship. How are you doing? Um, it was very much so getting to know somebody, getting to know who they are and letting them know who I am. And then over time explaining, this is something that I went through a few months ago and you know, I understand if it kind of weirds you out, but you seem like somebody that I can talk to. And I was hoping maybe we could talk about this from time to time because I need this. Well, I think Dan Savage actually has a really good line here that I'm going to reiterate. And that's that Mm -hmm. when you disclose something about yourself of this nature, what happens in the next moment tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the other person. It doesn't really say anything about you, right? So if they reject you because you tell them about this trauma in your past or that then creates some weird reaction in them, that tells you that they might not have been such a great friend to you to begin with or a really good match for you as a friend. But if they're actually compassionate, empathetic, there for you, understanding, non-judgmental, don't pry, you know, are, are just affirming to you in that moment. Other people who you know you should be investing in, who might you might want to open up to further, right? So you can kind of test. I don't want to say test your friends, but it really doesn't amount to a test, right? A, a, a test of suitability that mm-hmm. can happen once you're kind of down the road in a friendship and you're willing to start opening up. But realize that if the person rejects you, that says something about them and their comfort level, and doesn't really say anything about you, right? Yeah. This sort of admission, I'll say, because I don't like the idea of confessing that you were raped because it makes it sound like you did something wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that we don't want to shame it at all. Right. I hear that turn of phrase and it, it, it really angers me. There's some internalized shame built into it. It sucks. Yeah. You're not confessing anything. Genuinely, you're not admitting it because again, that, it, that, 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 that has some level of fault. Right. You admit guilt, right? Yeah. Exactly. I, I like to say disclose. like, I disclose, I reveal like, because reveal, if you think about it, it's like, it's <laughs> the big reveal. It's the one thing that everybody's like, Ooh, ah, like people look forward to. 
I wouldn't necessarily look forward to this, but it does kind of take away some of the built-in guilt and shame that comes along with it. For sure. You know, when you when you when when you reveal this time in your life to other people, it is a sink or swim moment. It is the moment that it, the people in your life that genuinely care about you will rise to the occasion. And the people that kind of are in it just because you're a great artist or you have a cute butt or you, you're somebody that they want to fuck. They're the ones that tend to sink. They're the ones that tend to drown and you kind of move past them. I wouldn't necessarily use this as like a test to be like, okay, I've got too many friends. So I'm going to talk about the shitty time that I experienced in my life, but I would use it as a gauge to figure out who it is in your life that you can count on to kind of be there for you to fight on your behalf when you fall down because you're just so exhausted. And trust me when I say this, the the, the road to recovery is exhausting. It's going to tucker you out. So it's good to have people in your corner that are willing to help you stand up to kind of make sure that you're still breathing just fine and get you back on the way. You know, you also have to trust, you know, you're learning patience with yourself. You're learning that, okay, well, today was a good day because I got up. I went to work. I was able to go on the train and I didn't have a panic attack. So like good day today while you're learning patience with yourself, you also kind of have to learn that your friends are going to be patient with you. And you have to trust that they will be because there, there were many times where I had friends that were like, Hey, we're going to go and, you know, go to this club and we're going to have a good time. There's this, uh, you know, uh, drag performance that we really want to see They're in town. Do you want to come with? And while now I would be like, Oh hell yeah. Like check Mark, please. Like, like, let me get on the go-go boots back then, you know, being in a club environment wasn't necessarily where I wanted to be. I knew that I would feel entirely anxious, that I wouldn't be able to enjoy it. And I would always apologize and say, I'm not really feeling up to that right now. I'm sorry. You know, something to that effect. And you have to understand that there will be some people that after the fifth or sixth time that you say that are going to be like, oh my God, you're just such a fucking homebody. You're a goddamn wallflower. Those are not really the best of friends to have. And those, again, tend to be the types of people that don't really follow you once you kind of disclose your past abuse. Good friends are ones that are patient and understanding. They're they're friends that say, you know, I understand if you don't want to go to this, but I just wanted to invite you. It's okay if you don't go this time, I'll invite you along the next time and the time after that and the time after that. And I'll keep inviting you. And maybe one day you'll feel comfortable enough to attend. And if you need to leave early, that's fine. We're a group. We're a posse. We roll as one. If you need to leave, we all leave because that's just how we do it. And I'm not going to feel angry about it because I'm there to enjoy myself. But if you can't enjoy yourself, then I can't enjoy myself. There's a certain sense of selflessness that comes with a friend of that nature. Do you need to trust that the friends that you have in your life, that you invite into your life, are selfless like that. Again, it goes back to the quality of character 
that reveals itself in the moments almost immediately after this disclosure. Something that was mildly difficult for me was I kind of, you know, with me being alexithymiac, it was difficult for me to kind of identify the emotions that I was experiencing and all of that good stuff. But the other portion was, it was difficult for me to kind of accept and trust that there are good people in the world and that the people that I am inviting in my life are good. It's, it's, I did, you know, sort of reach out almost as a necessity at first, because there is a certain kind of additional agony and loss of control that comes by secluding yourself from everybody, by walling yourself from the world. And at first I was, you know, always on edge. Like, when is this person going to fuck me over? Now, when is this person going to fuck me over? I bet this person is going to fuck me over. You have to accept that, you know, there is good in the world. There is good in people and that the people that you invite in your life are generally going to be good. Everybody has faults. Yes. But not everybody is an abuser. Not everybody is out to hurt you. Your friends might unwittingly hurt you with offhanded comments, with selfishness from time to time. But that is part of the human condition, unfortunately. If we look at, you know, the hedgehog's dilemma. When hedgehogs have sex, their, you know, their spines poke each other. And it is painful, but it is necessary for their survival. So when you interact with people there is inevitably going to be a point of pain. But it isn't necessarily intended. It isn't something that they woke up and they're like, all right, well, this is how I'm going to fuck over Vero today. And while (laughs) it might seem like that, understand that you are somewhat predisposed at this moment to identify those points. And accept that. Have conversations with your friends. You know, explain your mindset and you can use I statements, use nonviolent communication, work with your friends, work with your friends in these cases, because your friends, the people that you surround yourself with are probably very good people. It's just, they made a bad judgment call. They made, they misspoke. They made a joke that wasn't funny. Talk to them. And additionally, if they compliment you, if they say, girl, you're looking good today, don't take it as a piteous statement. Don't take it as something that's like virtue signaling where they're like, look at me, I'm being such a good friend. Accept compliments as valid. Accept compliments as they they really mean this. This is something that they really feel. Because if you constantly critique and analyze everything that everybody says that is of positive value to you, you're only going to be left with the negative. So if somebody says, wow, you know, you're looking really good today. That's a really nice outfit that you have on. How are you feeling today? Don't take it as like, you know, some people will take it as, oh, well, up until this point, you thought that I was looking shit. Like, you thought I was a horrible man person. Like, goddamn. Like, that's a that's a backhanded statement. Some people will take it as, oh, well, you're just saying that because you want me to feel better so I can be happier and you can stop hanging out with me, this pathetic little loser. 
don't go down those roads. Um, I sometimes go down the first road, but it's more as a joke because I genuinely do love myself now. But during that time, I necessarily didn't. So if somebody says you're looking good today, that's a really nice outfit. Wow, your hair looks really nice. Thank you. And accept that. Accept that feeling of warmth. That, that nice feeling that you feel inside of yourself, that's a good thing. That warm feeling of love and acceptance between friends, enjoy that. And, 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 and don't, don't feel like you have to feel guilty because I'm still feeling rough and raw after my abuse. I can't really feel happy. Don't shame yourself because you're feeling good in that moment. Don't feel like you have to always feel bad. Whatever you're feeling, remember, is natural, and accept it. If you're feeling good, chalk that up as a good fucking day, and say, you know what, I had a good day today, so that's just proof that tomorrow can be a good day. Just bear that in mind. Also, trying to continue to assume good faith in yourself and other people. Yeah, and that's something we talk about pretty often on the show. And it's something that you can kind of get lost that can get lost when you're feeling these feelings and you're feeling kind of you know a lot lack of trust in others. But it really does help, especially in people close to you who who do have a vested interest in your happiness. It does help if you can try to assume good faith in those individuals, even during this time where your trust is lowered. And one trick you can use, it's kind of a cognitive trick that I like to use when I'm feeling anxious is that you can actually imagine yourself without fear and kind of picture what, you know, an idealized version of yourself that wasn't emotional, what that person would do. Just kind of take yourself out of the situation or judge it externally. You can even write like an advice letter to yourself and ask yourself for advice. It's another trick you can use. But take yourself out of the situation. Take yourself out of the emotionality of the situation and just imagine yourself without fear. And then just visualize what that person, what that version of yourself would do and don't immediately act on that either. But now you can weigh what you're naturally feeling inclined to do, which is driven by your emotions, against the decision that you feel like you would make if you were devoid of emotions, and you can now weigh those decisions against each other, and you can do a comparison. And that's how you're going to make the absolute best decision, is by doing the dialectical comparison of that more emotionally driven, uh, in, 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 intu intuitive uh, response, and that more rational response that you get through visualization or playing a kind of thought experiment, right? So I think it's that dialectical analysis where you're actually com compare, comparing and contrasting those two ideas. That's where you're going to get the best results with your, with your decision-making. And in terms of whether you're embracing or pushing away a friend, I'd like to think in the majority of those cases, you're going to move towards embracing that friend or embracing that connection and not severing it, not pushing it away. Because in most cases, there's really no reason to burn bridges. And I think unless you really have had something truly transgressive with someone, which you must have if you're experiencing these feelings, you don't want to assume that every person is going to inflict that same pain on you because that's not a realistic interpretation of the situation, right? Right. Now, when I was kind of preparing this episode, it's um, there was a recent episode of Steven Universe, and I'm not going to spoil it because it is fairly recent, and I don't actually even think Vero has seen it. But there was a song that was sung in one of them where... The song touches on the idea of moving on after loss and how to cope with grief. And there's a character who 
is just intensely sad over the loss of one of her old friends. And another character kind of, you know, sings a little song and talks about, you know, all of the different, you know, ways that people find use for themselves. And there's a line in it where the um, friend says, wouldn't it be grand to get rid of it all when talking about negative, sad emotions? Um, I mean, even the, the, the song is titled, you know, what's the use of feeling blue? And while it can be, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek at time, the song, I do want to caution against entirely removing yourself from your emotions. And looking critically, looking objectively, looking externally can be a really healthy thing. And it can be positive to look forward and say, like, won't it be great when you're free from feeling all of these negative self-loathing things because yes that would be great but at the time that's not where you're at you know imagining yourself without fear imagining yourself without regret or or shame or guilt those are very healthy but you cannot bury them in the sand you have to come up with a as the song says let's come up with you know a plan of attack Whenever you are assaulted, you lose a part of yourself. There is a portion of yourself that is, you know, you kind of have to mourn in a sense. There, there's some grieving that you have to do. But after every loss, you have to find a way to continue to live. And so by analyzing these feelings, by imagining yourself without these feelings, by looking at yourself at your potential greatest you can then find the ways to take steps to get back to that point. So it's good to think objectively, but don't bury these feelings. Don't, don't, don't just kind of shove them in the sand. Don't be an ostrich and just bury your head because you're not helping yourself in the long run. You're hurting yourself. And sometimes you're going to have to be compassionate towards yourself and you will have to make the intuitive decision too. Just because you know what the rational decision is doesn't mean you always have to take it immediately. Mm -hmm. For example, you might know that what you need to do to resolve a situation is to make a phone call to someone that you're on bad terms with. But that doesn't mean that emotionally you need to inflict that phone call on yourself immediately. Maybe you need more time to heal first. Maybe you need more time to think about it. Maybe you need more time to weigh your options, right? You're allowed to take the compassionate approach and not inflict the rational decision on yourself immediately if you aren't ready for it. So remember to be compassionate towards yourself as well. Don't think that just because you've arrived at what could be the more rational decision doesn't mean that you always have to make it. Your emotions are there for a reason, and you do have a right to protect your emotional state. So if you really need to act in a way that protects an insecurity that you're not quite ready to address right now, because you've got too much going on or you're overextended or whatever the situation might be, it's okay to be compassionate towards yourself. And don't forget that as well. And here comes the point where I mildly talk negatively about nostalgia and particularly imagines nostalgia. There is a tendency where people will look back on an abuser, especially if it's somebody that was close to you, a relative, a friend, a partner, and they will try to look idealistically about, well, if I had done things this way, you know, think about how the relationship could have been. 
you know, there is a tendency for people to kind of look back on what might have been, what could have been, how perfect this relationship could have been. And I urge you against doing that. The longer that you try to look back in the immediate moment and try to find positives, trying to find ways that the relationship could have been just so amazing, thinking about, well, you know, in five years we were going to do this and maybe we would have gotten married and all of these sorts of things. You have to let go of something that you never had. And what you didn't have in this instance was a healthy relationship. And again, it is irregardless of whoever this was, a friend, a relative, pastor, priest, whatever it might have been, whoever your abuser was. Over time, you might look back and find some fond memories, perhaps. But you shouldn't try to falsely inflate positive in that situation. What's important in that moment is that you find the positive within yourself. You have to stop sabotaging yourself in these cases. And unfortunately, positive nostalgia on abusive individuals is a form of self-sabotage. I'm not saying that you have to forget the person. I'm not saying that even if they were a good person up until that point, you have to forget the good things. But you should not try to humanize the person, is what I'm saying. You shouldn't try to find the positive points in a negative situation. Um, what you should do when it comes to looking at these situations is find the positive actions that you took. Even if the first positive action that you can identify is, I got out. That is a great starting point. That is a compassionate starting point. And that is the point where you can say, that is where it ended. This is where I took back control. This is where the positive starts. Everything up until this point is tinged with the abuse. It is tinged. Understand that you are not your experiences. While the experiences themselves may be negative now because of that. They may be kind of cluttered and just grouped in with that point or the experience of abuse. You yourself do not have to carry that stain. It is not indelible. It is something that you might feel will be on you forever. But trust me when I say this. If you are patient with yourself and compassionate with yourself, you will be able to move past it. It takes time and it takes effort, but you will find it. With this being, you know, a podcast about relationships, really the question that gets asked is, how can I have sex after I was raped? Or how can I have a healthy relationship? After I was abused, I, I got out of an, I got out of an emotionally abusive relationship. How can I, you know, move past that? So one thing that I do want to point out, and this is something that we've kind of spoken about in the past, 
is that dating is always, it is already a vulnerable time in your life. You're learning how to kind of associate with somebody else. You're learning, again, how to integrate your life with another person. And you're bearing your soul to another person in many different regards. It can be a difficult sort of situation. It can be an incredibly vulnerable situation. And when you have been abused, you are already incredibly vulnerable. And adding another layer of vulnerability on top of that... You're, you're just going to feel like the, like if dating is being naked, dating after abuse can sometimes feel like you're dating without any skin with everything exposed. This goes back to the idea of being patient with other people. And in this case, you're being patient with somebody that you're interested in, that you want to date. And again, there is no roadmap to when is it acceptable to find somebody else to date after you've been abused, after you've been assaulted. There is no established timeline. It is up to you individually as to when you think that you're ready. I will say that in terms of research for this topic, it does seem that the general trend, if you are already in a relationship, for example, and you are abused by somebody that is not your partner, let's say a family member, somebody, somebody that you're not dating, or perhaps if you're in a polyamorous relationship, somebody that's in your relationship, but no longer is as a result of this abuse. There is a tendency for people to feel like they cannot continue in that relationship at all. And even though their partner has no share in the blame, quote unquote, did nothing wrong, it can be incredibly difficult for them to continue in that relationship. And that's fine. It's something that can be heartbreaking for the other person. You know, your partner might just want to be there for you to help you feel better. But if you don't feel capable of being a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend, whatever it might be, you know, listen to what your, your partner is saying. It could be maybe you need a break so you can figure yourself out. It could be you continue dating, but there is no sexual contact or physical contact as you can. find what works for you. But understand that it requires, again, that patience, that patience with yourself and that patience with other people. And everybody has to come to the table. Everybody. If you want to continue in that relationship or if you're seeking a new relationship... Again, you have to be understanding and you have to be almost kind of willing to take more time and to move slowly. It's okay if you need to hold off of sex. It is okay for you to kind of say, listen, I need a little bit of time for me not to be touched in a sexual fashion. I understand, you know... You might see me changing and you're going to get an erection or you might see me in the shower and you're like, holy cow, I, you know, really need it. It's fine. But you need to tend to your own garden as I repair the damage that's been done to mine. And again, I want to stress, I want to stress so hard. If it is your boyfriend, your girlfriend, 
If it is somebody in the relationship that is harming you, that is assaulting you, that is abusing you, seek help as soon as it is feasible and safe. Don't remain in a bad situation because you're afraid of what happens afterward. Don't be afraid of that. Allow yourself the opportunity to regain control of your life. All of this being said, when it comes to a pre-existing relationship, it's important that you feel comfortable when talking about these topics with your partner especially if you desire to stay with them long-term. Again, it doesn't have to be immediate. Just because it is the rational thing to do doesn't mean it is the emotionally correct thing to do. If you can't talk about it immediately after it happens, that's fine. Again, your partner, they need to be patient with you as well. There has to be patience all around. The, the, the patience is the virtue of a sustainable life and relationship after abuse in yourself and in others. Overall, in the long run, the information, sharing your feelings, your thoughts, and even your experience with your partner is going to be infinitely helpful. It's okay in the short run to say, I don't want you to touch me right now. And I can't really talk about it in the time being, but give me some time and I'll be able to. Just by being able to express yourself and to feel comfortable that you can express yourself in that moment, it helps. And down the line, when you are more comfortable in talking about it in long form and explaining your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions, it's going to bring so much more healing and growth to you as an individual. The thing is here is that the information that you share with your partner, while it does help solidify the relationship and it does help to say, we are in this together. The point of the fact is, is that you are already in this together. You already made that commitment. And there will be some people that when they hear that you were assaulted or abused, they might dip out. And that is an unfortunate thing. And it goes back again to the idea that's the quality of character that they have. And it is not your fault. So don't blame yourself if your partner is like, oh, you were raped? Um, no, thank you. They can fuck off. They're not somebody you need in your life. But if they are somebody that's like, I am here for you, whatever you need. Be patient with them. This is a difficult topic. This is a difficult area for everybody. And so you don't necessarily need to guide them through the healing. You just have to be patient with the fact that they may not fully understand what happened. And they might ask questions. And you might feel hurt by those questions, or they might trigger an emotional response that you're just not ready to deal with. And you have to understand they're not doing it to harm you. They're doing it because they care. And so you have to sometimes take a step back and say, I understand what you're trying to do here, and I can see and I appreciate it, but now is not the time for that. 
Now is not the time for us to discuss this. Soon it will be, but not right now. When it comes to sex, though, there are certain factors that go into sex to be enjoyable, and this is just kind of me talking perhaps in a little bit more of an academic fashion. Some of the more core functions for sex to be enjoyable, the foundations, you have to understand your likes and dislikes. You have to know what you like in sex, what you don't like in sex. You need to be focused more on experiencing pleasure than having a good performance. You're not, you're not an actor. You're people that are sharing an intimate moment, and it's all about pleasure. And it's not just your pleasure, it's your partner's pleasure. It is mutually gained pleasure. It's about communication. It's about being assertive that you get to experience pleasure too, that you get to experience your desires, that your partner gets to experience all of them. And both of you mutually appreciate each other, or all of you appreciate each other, as a sexual partner. These are the core foundations. There's more, of course, that you can add on to them when it comes to kinks and fetishes and all of that good stuff. But in order for sex to be enjoyable, these foundations kind of have to be in play. And during a time of healing after abuse, you may not be able to achieve those points. You may not be comfortable. You may not be so focused on achieving your own pleasure. You may not necessarily appreciate yourself as a sexual partner. You need to, over time, identify what those areas are in your life that you're not able to achieve and work on learning to achieve them again if you want to resume being a sexually active individual. Because what's going to end up happening is if you don't work on those areas, you're going to find sex to be miserable. And this is, again, where talking with a therapist, especially a sex therapist, somebody that focuses on abuse and using cognitive behavioral therapy in order to help you overcome these areas of just self-agony, will be infinitely helpful for you. And again, have patience with yourself. And if you're a partner of somebody that has experienced abuse and is going through the healing process, you need to be patient with them as well. You as a partner, you are there to support your mate. You are there to support them during this time of healing. And if they say that they are not comfortable having sex, you accept that as an answer and you do not bully them or shame them or neg them into having sex. I don't give a damn if it's been a year since you've had sex. I could give a fuck. If you are committed in that relationship and the terms of the relationship are the two of you have sex and only the two of you have sex together, well, guess what? Just because you're having no sex doesn't mean that the relationship is invalid. I understand people have needs and wants, but you are in that commitment. And if you cannot honor that commitment, then that is a separate conversation that you need to have. I don't give a fuck. And I'm tired of hearing goddamn excuses. Well, I cheated because you weren't feeling really sexually active after you were raped. Do you not understand how shitty that sounds? I've heard this excuse from several people. And it is not an excuse for being a shitty person. People make mistakes, yes, in a relationship. People sometimes cheat in a completely healthy relationship, yes. But if you are there to support your partner as they heal, then you are there to support your partner as they heal. It is good to look after yourself, but you can jerk off looking at porn. 
you can maybe have a conversation. Say, I understand you're not feeling super sexual right now, and you're going through this period. You know, I'm here for you. I'm here to support you. In time, though, maybe we have a conversation about perhaps opening up the relationship. But do not do that the second that they're like, I was raped. And you're like, uh, well, can we open up the relationship, maybe? Understand there's a time, a place, and a circumstance for every kind of conversation. Be there to support your partner. Don't hate them. Don't think less of them. Don't consider them to be a bad person just because they are not having sex because they do not feel comfortable with it. There are alternatives and they're ethical alternatives. Don't be an, un an unethical dick to somebody that has had one of the worst experiences somebody can go through in their life happen to them. Just don't do it. And don't try to make a goddamn excuse, especially to me. I'm tired of it. Take responsibility for your actions. If you are responsible for helping your friend, your partner, your lover, your husband, your wife, whatever they are to you heal, that is your focus in the relationship. And I don't care if it takes a week, a month, a year. Honor your commitments. The decent soapbox to be on Metrico, I appreciate that one. <laughs> Sorry, it gets me really heated up because the thing is, is that when people are abused, there is a, a skewing of the way that you view, let's say, sexual energy or sex in general. There, there, It's no longer this positive physical contact. It can become warped and jaded and be negative. So for a mental exercise for me personally, what I did was I it helped me to start looking at the positives of like sexual energy. Like I get an erection and it's a good thing. And sex is a good thing because it's a choice. It's mutual. It's a mutual choice. It's a decision we both made and we enforce boundaries and I'm sharing part of who I am as a sexually active person with somebody else. It's not being ripped away from me. It's not being stolen from me. It's something that I freely offer. It is me being vulnerable, saying, sometimes sex with me isn't a-okay a perfect 100%, but, like, this is who I am, and I really enjoy you, so I hope you enjoy me. That's what sex is. It is supposed to be positive. It's supposed to be fun and adventure. With, with rules and boundaries, of course, because all adventures have to have rules and boundaries. Otherwise, it would just be chaos in the bedroom, which... I mean, can be fun from time to time, but let's be real. can be fun from time to time, let's be real. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to recommend. And this is why disclosing certain things to your partner if you want to resume a sex life is important. You want to make them aware of the facts and consider some of the following. You, you might want to make sure that there's no scene or, or sexual behavior that mimics that of your abuser. If you guys enjoy sexual role-playing and you happen to have been raped perhaps by a teacher, maybe don't do student-teacher role-play for a long time. If your partner, you know, if, if your partner enjoys maybe drunk sex and you were abused by somebody that got you drunk at a club, maybe you hold off on mixing booze and sex for a bit. 
if there were, you know, places that you were touched, you know, positions that you were held in, touches, again, smells, sounds, you know, tr disclose those and say, you know, when I was assaulted, it's, um, they just had Britney Spears on a loop. Maybe we just make sure there's nothing that sounds like Britney Spears in our sexy time playlist. It sounds, you know, objectively kind of like an easy thing to do, but it can be a difficult thing to disclose. But consider that, you know, unless your partner knows that these are things... What the hell? Hmm. Our Alexa has decided to be possessed, apparently. Uh, these things happen. <laughs> well, hello, Alexa. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I mean, granted, Siri does that to me all the time, so what can you do? <laughs> you know, oh, technology. What can you do? But these are things, you know, again, that they're important to disclose, because if your partner doesn't know them, that, that these are things that might emotionally trigger you you know these are things that you want to make them aware of that way sex can continue to be fun sexy awesome good time and it doesn't continue to have this negative tinge to it and again from my personal bank make moving slow a priority in order to cultivate safety and choice some people like sex to be like a quick like wham bam thank you ma'am like we're in the throes of passion consider making sex something that takes an evening not an hour focus on foreplay and feeling good and you know positive questions hey do you like it when i touch you there do you like it when i touch you there and if it's like no then it's like i won't touch you there then okay good because this allows you to become reacquainted with your body as you continue to heal. And this allows for you to begin to associate positivity with sex. Move slow. Have fun with it. It doesn't need to be academic. It doesn't need to be, you know, do you wish to engage in intercourse? Okay, I am touching you on your knee. Do you enjoy being touched on your knee? It doesn't need to be anything like that. It can be sensual. But take it slow. And make sure that your partner is aware that it shouldn't go from like, I just took off your shoe, now I'm eating your pussy out. Go <laughs> slow. And one thing, and really this is kind of the last thing that I have to kind of say on this is that sex is not assault. Assault might have sex as a portion of the assault, but assault is taking control away from you. It is stealing, by force, control and agency. That's not what sex is. Sex between you and a lover is sharing parts of your life with one another sharing intimacy, and sharing your bodies. It can be difficult immediately after to differentiate between the two. It absolutely can. But just bear that in the back of your mind, that sex is fun, and it's good, and it's enjoyable. But not right now. But it can be. 
So give yourself time to heal. Again, sex therapy is a, it's an amazing thing if you have the ability to to seek it out. Because if your goal is to regain sexual agency, then a sex therapist is going to be able to give you those tools. You know, regular counseling is also good if you don't have access to um, a good therapist that focuses on sex therapy. But counseling, you want to make sure that you find somebody that is sex positive. You want to find somebody that I'm just going to go out on a limb and say is not necessarily Christian because they tend to take the approach of, well, if you hadn't been wearing those revealing clothes, then maybe the man would have been able to control himself. With yeah, the lady. there's a higher high incidence of sex shaming. And there, there's also, if you Google around, you can find there are lists of sex positive mm. uh, therapists and counselors that you can uh, look for. And those are great to check out for resources for those sorts of things. Right. And if your abuse happens in the form of, let's say that it's some kind of fetish play where a safety word is not obeyed or adhered to, then you can also find kink positive therapists that will be able to help you on your road to recovery as well, because that is a thing that happens as well. And it is equally as damaging and hurtful. So just bear all of this in mind. I know that it's been kind of soapboxy, and I'm not going to apologize for it. These are things that need to be said, unfortunately. There are people out there who their goal is to take from other people. And we can look at them and find ways to identify how they developed those behaviors. Maybe they were bullied as a child. Maybe they had a bad upbringing Da, 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 da. But at the end of the day, they made a choice, the choice to steal agency, to steal decision-making from you. And it becomes your objective in the short run to kind of pull those pieces back, to regain control. And it's a difficult path. I mean... You know, it's something that I've been through. It's something that Vero has been through. And it wasn't an immediate switch for either of us. I'm very fortunate, and, you know, Vera is very fortunate that we are patient individuals with ourselves. Yeah, I've definitely cultivated resiliency in myself, and I think that experience is part of how I managed to do that. So, mm -hmm. definitely. But. Uh, we'd like to kind of impart some of that wisdom onto you because it, you definitely need to be compassionate with yourself and patient with yourself to get through something like an assault, right? Right. You know, it's, it's love is patient. That's the first part of that entire part. Love is patient. Love is kind. If you need a mantra, there it is. If you need help loving yourself, remember, be patient with yourself because that's, at the end of the day, a way of loving yourself. And to everybody who has been through an experience like this, I feel for you. I genuinely do. I know firsthand how difficult this can be in my experience. But I believe that everybody has the capacity to heal and to, be, to feel complete again. And so I encourage you to keep feeling strong to keep fighting, to keep waking up, to keep realizing that 
Today was not special, but tomorrow might be. And to keep fighting for who you want to become. This world is already difficult enough, and this is an added level of difficulty that you did not invite. But you're a strong person, and you're going to make it. So keep on keeping on. We're going to move on to our question. And I guess because this is the heavy episode, um, this question is also mildly heavy. Um, the questioner asks, my mate is suicidal. What should I do? And uh, their email was, hey there, feral attraction. My mate and I have been together for almost three years. Currently, we have to live in his parents' house, which can be very bad for him. Um, he has uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and severe depression. He's taking medicine to help and also medicine to help quit smoking. Uh, anyway, last night he tried to kill himself. It's the third time since I moved here that he's done this. Other times, you know, sometimes I feel I'm the cause for it. Uh, I would assume anyone would think the same. I don't want to go into details um, as to how he tried, but let's say whenever I found out this morning, I was in a very bad mood. I've only said one thing to him since that. I'm really disappointed and hurt that you would do that. I feel like it's just getting worse and worse. I have no idea how to help him. He currently sees a behavior therapist about three every three or so weeks and a psychologist every month. If you have any advice to help me, that would be very much appreciated. I don't want to lose him, but I'm at a breaking point to where I just want to end the relationship because of him trying so many times since I've moved here. This is a heavy sort of question. And this also kind of goes into what we said a little bit earlier. When people feel, you know, when people go through traumatic experiences, and it does sound like your partner, your mate, um, suffering from PTSD, is kind of experiencing, you know, has had similar experiences whether they were abuse or assault or, you know, perhaps they were in the military and they saw things that they just can't unsee. PTSD comes in many different forms. What's important is that you have to come to a decision on your own, um, my dear questioner, and that is, are you willing to be there for your mate? Because your mate, it sounds like they need somebody and it sounds like they need support. And it sounds like they need somebody to talk to. You've mentioned that they're seeing therapists, that they're seeing both a behavioral therapist and a psychologist um, roughly twice a month. Um, once, you know, they see each one once every month or so. It's okay to feel disappointed and it's okay to mentioned that you feel hurt that they would try to do this, but I don't necessarily know if saying that you're disappointed that they're trying to do this is perhaps the best way. It isn't necessarily super supportive, and it doesn't really inspire a conversation. I would I would urge you to talk with your partner and and see if if you can't have these conversations as as to, you know, why do you think this is the best decision? What are things that you need in order to make you not make, you know, these decisions? 
what what do you think will help you heal? I mean, they're seeing your partner is seeing a therapist, they're seeing a, a psychologist. And perhaps, you know, they need to see them more often. Perhaps they need to see if there's any kind of medication that they're that they can change because they're currently being medicated. It could be maybe the medication is having some negative side effects, especially when it comes to the um, stop smoking medication. There are lots of factors that you can look into to try to improve the quality of life of your partner. Well, one thing I will also mention too is make sure you're being careful with yourself that your boundaries aren't being mm -hmm. violated too badly and that your integrity is not being eroded by the situation. You want to do some tests with yourself and ask you why it is you're choosing to do the things that you're doing. You need to figure out, you know, am I doing this out of kindness, generosity, compassion for my partner, uh, something that I voluntarily choose to do, mm -hmm. or am I doing this because I'm afraid of my partner or something that they might do? Am I doing this out of a sense of obligation? Am I doing this out of a sense of guilt, right? And if you feel like you're being motivated by fear or obligation or guilt, that's a sign that you're being emotionally blackmailed by your partner, and it's a sign that your relationship has become really toxic. And it's kind of difficult to maintain a loving connection under conditions of extreme emotional blackmail. So you want to be very careful because when you're put in that position, it's very likely to destroy your romantic connection. And you have to be very, your, your relationship is kind of on life support at that point. So it, you, what you really need to do to save that situation is kind of paradoxically is to get yourself out of that situation so that you aren't being blackmailed anymore. And what you do to do that is make sure your partner is set up with a lot of family and friends who are surrounding them and who know that they are going through some trouble and that this person has said that they're considering hurting themselves. You make sure that everyone's got the suicide hotlines, that this person's not being left alone, that they're being checked on frequently. The people are, are checking in on them, making sure that they're okay. And then you leave because no one can ever make themselves the, your responsibility. And you need to realize that you can't live in a state of emotional slavery. You need to realize that someone else's emotions are not your responsibility. Your responsibility to your partner is to help them with their emotions, but you are not responsible for your partner's emotions. And that means that you need to be able to walk away from the situation if you are being emotionally blackmailed and you feel like that's making the relationship toxic. So set the person up with a support network, make sure that they are okay, but then leave. And honestly, that can actually make your relationship recover because when you're no longer under that condition of blackmail, you can reconnect with your partner and that might actually bring them out of their depression. But they need this codependency, this blackmailing relationship that you have, that cycle needs to be broken. You need to get yourself out of that situation. That's just my personal opinion. But I mean, I think everything Metrico said is also valid. There's a lot of analysis that you have to do. And some of it does need to be independent. Some of that does need to be with, you know, within the context of a conversation with your mate. And some of it also does need to be with your mate's parents. You mentioned that you are living with his parents. So it seems like they are, you know, supportive of the relationship. Perhaps it would be a good idea to talk to them. Are they aware of your of your mate's attempts? Are they able to offer any additional support? Do they feel that maybe bringing some form of, you know, maybe having some additional support would be, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can come in and you can try to sort of um, help. But at first, you just need to have these conversations and you need to bring everybody on the same page. 
If this relationship is emotionally blackmailing, as Vera said, then perhaps the best choice is to leave a positive support structure in your place and, you know, make your own way. But at the end of the day, if you choose to continue in this relationship, make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons, that you're doing it for yourself. And the support that you offer comes from a place of love. Again, I just recommend a lot of communication and a lot of analysis and trying to figure out what's best for your mate and moving from there. These types of situations are incredibly difficult. When there are lots of factors, depression, PTSD, these things sound like a lot of professional help are required. And it could be perhaps that the best solution is to get your mate in a position where he receives more professional help. But have these conversations and make these decisions and weigh them heavily because what you decide will have ramifications not only on yourself, but on many, many people. Good luck. We're going to go ahead and uh, close out this week's show. Um, again, it's been a heavier show. Um, but hopefully it, it, it's helpful for the individuals that were asking us, us questions on this topic. Um, next week, it's going to be a lighter show. We're going to talk about commissioning art. Um, both, you know, this is, this is something within the fandom that's kind of an issue. There are people that feel entitled to art, people that feel entitled to certain prices on art. And then there's even the idea of, should you commission art of somebody else's character? Should you commission, like, how you know, all sorts of fun little things. So it's going to be more of a nuanced, lighter show to balance out the heaviness that was this show. Um, and I think it'll be a fun one, but also an important one, as we're, you know, this episode will hit the day after Valentine's Day. So it'll be kind of related to like how, you know, what's the best way to get gift art of your partner's character into you without letting your partner know all sorts of fun stuff. So a little furry guide to commissioning art next week on Feral Attraction. If you have questions about art or feedback on this week's show, if you think that we missed something, that we were wrong on something, if you have advice that you want to give to the questioner from this week, Hit our contact page up. There are so many ways to anonymously, and also, if you don't want to be anonymous, get into touch with us. You can call us, you can email us, you can send us a message on Telegram in our group chat, you can send us a message on Twitter. So many ways to get into touch with us. If you like our show, it would help us also if you leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It would also help us if you do that on the Google Play Music Store, wherever you happen to listen to our content. And if you are able to financially become a patron of ours on Patreon, that helps us out a lot as well. Uh, we have different tiers on Patreon that allow for different kind of incentives. Um, one of them is we do shoutouts at the end of the show for our patrons that requested it. Uh, Snares is one such Patreon, a patron on Patreon, rather. Uh, Snares has a webcomic, uh, Meteor Showers. You can become a patron of that as well at patreon.com slash snares. Or if you're looking for a nice little commission, visit Snares's Fur Affinity. His username is Furious, F-U-R-I-O-U-S. Zarpolis is also 
a patron of ours, an author who wrote a high-tech sci-fi story known as the Para-Imperium Universe. You can become a patron of his as well, or you can check out his recently published book, which was published by Thurston Hell Press, titled The Pride of Parahumans. You can check it out on Amazon. Or if you're just looking for something light, some kind of daily red panda dog ramblings, you can go to Myron on Twitter at MyronTheFluffy, at MyronTheFluffy. So next week we're going to talk about commissioning art. It's going to be a fun episode, and I look forward to it. Is there anything else you feel to add, Vero, or do you think we're... I think that rounds us out. It was a pretty heavy episode, but definitely good for us to get out there. So, good luck, everybody. Have a great week. Until then, I'm Metrico. I'm Vero the Science Collie. Be well. Thank you.